This is Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. Join me, my husband Mark of Real Clear Investigations, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, and others for the 2023 Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in Chicago. Issuesetc.org. We think of this as a time of crisis for Western civilization. Is it the first time that, well, really this complex of ideas going back into the ancient Christian, Jewish, and even pagan world, the first time that it has faced existential crisis? What kind of crises is Western civilization actually facing today, and how can we draw upon the thoughts of those ancients to face the crisis of our time? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the five-fold crisis for Western civilization, Dr. Spencer Clavin. He's editor at the Claremont Institute. He has a doctorate in Greek literature from Oxford University, and he's author of the new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Dr. Clavin, welcome. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. How are we going to define Western civilization in this conversation? It's a great question. When I told somebody I was writing a book called How to Save the West, this friend of mine said, oh, I love John Wayne movies. That's awesome. And I said, not that West, not how the West was won. When I talk about Western civilization, I'm talking about the intellectual and cultural inheritance of Athens and Jerusalem, these two great pillars of our civilization. When I say Athens, that stands in for the philosophies of Greco-Roman antiquity. And then Jerusalem stands in for the scripture and traditions of Judaism and Christianity. And the reason of Greek philosophy and the revelation of uh, monotheistic religion that comes down and fuses to create European civilization forms this many, many centuries long tradition that we're all inheritors of. You know, it's easy to feel like every problem that comes up today is a problem that has never been faced before. Digital technology is transforming the world. And people sometimes act as if all the good answers to all the best questions have, were thought up right after Charles Darwin and everything else is kind of useless. But the thing about the digital age is it's actually bringing us up against fundamental problems and questions. What's a human being? What's our place in the universe? Is there a God? Questions that have been around ever since humanity has been around. And that means there have been people throughout history who have thought very deeply about these questions, come up with some very sophisticated answers that can help us make sense of the world. And most importantly, it means we're not alone. This is not the first time these questions have come up and we can draw wisdom from the tradition that we inherit as a way of figuring out how to move forward as the world starts to change. Has Western civilization passed a point of no return with respect to those historical origins? Well, it's easy to feel that way, of course. A lot of things seem to be going wrong. And I can't sit here and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or five years from now. I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to have a vision of the future. But I do know this. When we talk about the traditions of the West, we are talking about wisdom which has endured for centuries, for generations, 
during the rising and falling of civilization after civilization. It's not a matter of indifference what happens in our politics. And, you know, America is crucially important. Our politics are crucially important. But unless we understand that we are reaching for something higher than the here and now, we'll just fall victim to despair because we have no power to change the future. What we do have is this tradition that we inherit. And it's a tradition that looks above the here and now to higher truths, things like beauty and goodness and view, which are eternal. That's how we've been able to discuss them for centuries, for generation to generation. And it's why we are able, when we think of ourselves as inheritors of the West, to stave off despair and wake up every morning ready to carry that light, because that's what's going to matter most, is not who wins the next election, even though that's important. It's not what law gets written tomorrow, even though that's important. It's how we show up for our kids and our families and our communities and how we do that informed by the great minds that have gone before us. What is the crisis of reality, as you call it? Well, it's at the basic, most fundamental level, it's the question whether there's anything absolutely true and absolutely false, or is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as Hamlet famously says in his madness. When Kellyanne Conway made that gaffe about alternative facts in the Trump administration, she said something like, we're using alternative facts and everybody jumped down her throat as if this were the first time that we'd ever faced this problem in our politics. But of course, you know, even I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton said it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is when you start to unravel this thread, you realize that it's been a long time now that people have been asking whether there really is any such thing as absolute truth and whether we should care. It wouldn't be better maybe to float up into some kind of virtual reality space. Maybe we're all just going to upload ourselves into the metaverse and then the world will just be what we make of it. And when I put it that way, it sounds like something we've never thought about before, but it's actually one of the oldest problems in Western philosophy. In Athens, in the fifth century BC, the great thinker Socrates was walking and moving among the democratic kind of youths of the city. And it was very popular in those days to say, actually, there's really nothing absolutely true. We move through the world and we get to decide what's true. Everything is in flux, but otherwise we just sort of make our own decisions and it's the will of the powerful that matters. And you're hearing almost exactly the same thing these days out of our academy, have been for a while, that truth is just a matter of power structures. And so what we need to do is we need to shut up all the bad people. We need to stop the bad, nasty deplorables from saying what what they think, because then it won't be true. If we don't look at it, it won't be true. And so that's the crisis of reality in a nutshell, is the loss of that shared frame of reference, that shared truth. And what I argue in the book is that the Greek philosophers can help us to recover the sense that actually there are some things that are good, no matter who says otherwise, some things that are true, no matter who says otherwise. And we can move from there, reason from there, to build a saner society. What truths did those thinkers of antiquity recognize that we are in danger of losing today? Well, there's one really important one, and I think it leads into this second 
crisis. It's the truth that we have souls, that we're not just meat, that we're not just physical entities, chemistry sets inside of skeletons, but that we actually have something about us that is more than merely physical. And the reality of that, the reality of a world that is not just composed of atoms bouncing around and shooting endlessly through a void, but is actually composed of higher truths that we have a body and a soul. That is one of the most important things that has been denied for as long as I've been alive loudly and over and over again in our public square. We suggest that actually it's all just science and, you know, biology explains everything about us. But we know in our hearts that doesn't work. It's not a full account of what we are. It doesn't explain our loves, our desires, our dreams, our memories, all the most important things about us. And so in the second part of the book, I talk about the body crisis, which is the idea that, you know, maybe we can just reconfigure our flesh and do whatever we want with our bodies, either, you know, through transgender surgeries or through transhumanist projects. And the real core of the insight that I draw out of the tradition on this is that, no, actually what we are, what human beings have always been is embodied souls. Our bodies are the language that express our souls. And our souls are not just something that boils down to an MRI scan or an electrochemical impulse. They are actually the deepest and truest part of us. And without it, we can't make sense of ourselves and you start to get all the pathologies we're, we're currently seeing in public life. So drawing on the work of uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and Aristotle, we can point the way back to a saner way of understanding ourselves, even as digital technology increases its capacities. So is that crisis of the body, is that entirely new? Oh, no, absolutely not. You know, it's funny because this is another one of those things that people think, oh, it's just, you know, five minutes ago, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about, you know, transgenderism and there's this extreme movement. And on one level, it's true. You know, that is kind of a radical new thing that has popped into the news. But on another level, it's kind of like the old joke, you know, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer is very gradually and then suddenly all at once. And in some ways, what we've been facing in this body crisis is a growing sense that our bodies and our souls are split apart. They're split in two and our bodies are actually sort of a burden. We really would rather not have them. They break down and die. They're uncomfortable. They make us feel ashamed. And this sense, this urgent sense that we need to get out of our flesh, crawl out of our skin, that is very, very ancient. That's been around probably for as long as people have been thinking about it. But certainly since the Neoplatonists who were these philosophers and thinkers that just felt as if the body was kind of a dead weight that needed to be uh, transcended or left behind. And ever since then, you've had offers, you know, people like Rene Descartes who want to, you know, make a divide between mind and body, soul and body. And the thing about it that once you start looking at the history of it and understanding the sort of longer story about this this problem is that that never works. It's never an offer that actually delivers when somebody says, you know, you'll feel better if you just remold your flesh to conform to the true you, the real authentic self. And that's what they're offering kids these days in a lot of places. You know, they're saying you're not an embodied soul. You're not, your body's not meant to be this way. You can choose what you want to be. You can transform yourself. That is a very, very ancient lie. And there are good remedies to it in the ancient texts that have dealt with this issue. There's a Greek 
concept, which is called hylomorphism, the mixture of form and matter, soul and body together, that points the way toward something saner. Because the thing about these kind of modern gurus is they offer you these glittering promises, but they always end up making us sicker and sadder than we need to be. So I propose in the book, why not rather return to some of these richer ideas from the tradition? How in particular do ancient pagan Jewish Christian thinkers provide guidance through our postmodern crisis of the body? Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting point in which Athens and Jerusalem meet kind of unexpectedly in some ways. You have this pagan notion, this philosophical idea from the Greek world that the whole of everything is made out of form and matter. That's that hylomorphism I was talking about before. Everything down to like a bird, say, or a flower. Yes, it's made out of physical stuff, but the physical stuff doesn't give a full explanation of what that thing is, why it is the way it is. Um, and what Aristotle would have called its morphe, its shape, its form, and then its telos, its end or purpose. Those things dictate how the thing grows, how it develops. And you can take that idea and apply it, for instance, to a human person in embryo in the womb. You know, people often say, well, it's just a cluster of cells. And of course, the answer to that is, well, it currently is a cluster of cells, but we're all clusters of cells. And what matters is not how many cells we have or what kind of stuff we're made out of, but the shape that these things take organically over time. So this is this Greek idea that comes down to us from pagan antiquity. But it's Fascinatingly, it gets picked up in the Christian tradition, in particular by St. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Catholic theologian. And he kind of picks up Aristotle's idea and says, this is what we are. The soul is the first actuality of a natural body having life potentially, which is kind of a fancy and complicated way of saying your soul is like the fact that you are alive. It's the organizing principle of your flesh. And one of the things I point out in the book is that very mysteriously and profoundly, when Aquinas is saying this, he is drawing on pagan philosophy, but he's also right in line with scripture. Because you go back to Genesis and you read the creation of Adam, of man from the earth, and what God does is he takes dirt, dust, and he breathes the breath of life into it. And then it becomes a living soul. It's not a disembodied breath that floats outside and that's man, but then it gets trapped in this meat puppet or this dirt box or whatever. It's actually the fusion of the dust and the breath that makes man a living soul. And so this is a, one way in which the whole Western tradition beautifully unites to show us a vision of what we are that is much higher and more ennobling than the kind of materialist one that's on offer from our modern gurus. What's the crisis of meaning and how is it related to the two we've discussed, the crises of reality in the body? Well, when you start to deny the existence of things like the soul, which we've been doing for a while now, and when you sort of suggest that science has disproved everything spiritual and it's all just matter, it's all just physical processes kind of coughing up organisms, and we happen to be the smartest organism that matter has coughed up by accident. This is kind of the, it's not just the idea of evolution, but it's the kind of evolutionist idea of the world, that everything is kind of reducible to these physical processes. Then you suddenly are faced with a very difficult question, which is, since the world is just matter, if that's true, then why should we seek something like virtue? Why should we do good to one another? Often doing good is not to our best material advantage. It's not the most kind of 
evolutionary adaptive thing that we would want to do. And so nowhere in this materialist account of the world do you actually find any reason for doing things or any meaning behind the things that we do. And that's the crisis of meaning. It's the desire to live a meaningful, we all want to live a meaningful life. Everybody wants to think that what they do has some consequence, has some significance. And even people who talk as if they were materialists still live as if their lives had meaning and still often talk as if there is such a thing as the good or some purpose to the world. And yet, in fact, without some higher good, we can't really say that there is meaning to the world. So this is this crisis that's evolved because we refuse to admit that there's a higher power at work. And I think that unless we return to this idea that there is a higher power at work, we'll just go on kind of losing our sense of meaning. And and the point is that really, Everything we do implies that that meaning exists. And so we ought to be a little bit more serious and self-aware about asking, well, is it true? Is it possible that there's something more than mere matter at stake here? We're talking about the five-fold crisis for Western civilization with Dr. Spencer Clavin. On the other side, given that crisis of meaning, how do we return to original truths and find that true meaning? Hey everyone, I'm so excited to come out to the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, it's going to be a blast. Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee. I'm going to be giving a presentation called Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, where I talk about how we write comedy and how Christians need to use art and writing and all of that wonderful stuff to fight against cancel culture and how we have to take a bold stand for the truth using the creative talents that God has given us. It's going to be a great time and I'm so excited to come out and see everybody, meet everybody, and uh, and talk a little bit about how we write satire and use that to communicate God's truth. You can meet and hear Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. We're discussing the fivefold crisis for Western civilization with Dr. Spencer Clavin. He's editor at the Claremont Institute. He has a doctorate in Greek literature from Oxford University, and he's author of the new book. How to Save the West, 
Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. So, Dr. Clavin, given this crisis of meaning, how do we return to the original truths to find true meaning? You know, what's so interesting when you start to look at this stuff is that a lot of the time we betray ourselves by our actions. We say that we don't really think there's anything beyond the material world. And then we get up in the morning and we seek justice. We try to do good. We try to do right by the people who love us. And all of these things point us to a higher truth. And so what I suggest in the book is that it's less a conversion that we need and more an admission or a surrender to uh, admit that we are living out our belief in a meaning, belief in a higher truth. That's the way, in some sense, just to recover what we're already acting on, which is our belief in a highest good. Bob Dylan, the great prophet and poet, says you've got to serve somebody, so it might as well be God. But I think there's a, even a deeper line in the Psalms and in the Bible where it says, you know, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And typically we read this and we think that just means that like atheists are dumb or something, like as if it's kind of a dig at, at atheists. But actually, there's a much more profound meaning to that text. I think what's being said there is if you tell yourself that there is, that you don't worship, if you tell yourself that you don't believe in any higher power, then you are making yourself into a fool. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. It's a kind of self-deception. And I think we're seeing that all over the world and the country these days, people who say they don't believe in a higher power behaving in very religious ways. For instance, kneeling at Black Lives Matter rallies in petition for absolution, or let's say, you know, listening to the CDC and talking about the science, capital S, as if it were a kind of absolute truth, higher power. And then Dr. Fauci comes out and says, you know, I represent the science. That's a claim to clerical authority. That's a claim to occult knowledge. And so what we're seeing already is that people are doing religion. They're worshiping higher powers. They're putting their faith, their trust in something above them. And what I'm suggesting in the book is the way to return to something better than that is just to become more self-aware, to realize that you already are worshiping and the things you've chosen to worship are going to disappoint you as they already have again and again. So a better way would be to return to the wisdom of the tradition and to ask what is worthy of worship? What should be in that position of the highest good? And that'll lead you onto a better course. What is the crisis of religion? You know, we've been skirting up against it already, and it's almost inevitable. It's almost impossible not to touch on the crisis of religion as you start to think about these other crises, because it's behind and beneath everything we've been talking about. If there is such a thing as absolute truth, if there is such a thing as a soul, if there is such a thing as meaning to life beyond mere science and biology, um, then ultimately we are starting to talk about God. There's no way around it. And it, it can become kind of a dirty word in modern intellectual discussions to talk about God because we have this sort of silly notion that science has disproved God and it's not very sophisticated to believe in a sky daddy up there in the heavens. And we have all this scorn, all this public scorn for faith, which suggests, I think, that we don't want to look at the question because the reality is that it never happened that science disproved God. That's not a thing at all. In fact, you know, many of the great thinkers of the scientific revolution were 
deep, profound believers in the Christian God. And so really what's going on is we've installed a kind of counterfaith, a kind of anti-faith in the public square that makes it impossible to confess that you believe in a higher power. And this is the crisis of religion, is people behaving in religious ways, acting according to religious principles, but unable to look at themselves as believers or think of themselves as believers. And what I argue in the book is actually not only does science not disprove God? Science actually needs God to make the fullest possible kind of sense. Science is a tool that we use to understand the universe, but the whole reason that we want to understand it, the whole shape that it has, shows us that it must have a consciousness behind it. There must be somebody behind that design. And, you know, we, you don't have to join the church that I'm a part of tomorrow. You don't have to believe the Nicene Creed immediately. I'm not here arguing that we should publicly install some national faith. But what I am suggesting is that nothing we're doing makes any sense unless we believe in a God, as indeed the greatest thinkers before us have all believed in a consciousness that created the universe. None of it makes sense without that. What is the crisis of the American regime? Well, this is where we start to talk now about the stuff that maybe is most immediately on our minds. Maybe listeners out there are thinking, you know, okay, it's all very well and good to talk about Aquinas and Aristotle and all these great thinkers, but there's politics going on. You know, there's actual problems in the world and we wake up and the news delivers disaster after disaster. And so the real question that we then turn to at the end of this book is now that we've kind of examined some of these deeper issues, what is going to become of us? What's going to happen to America? And I argue that in order to ask that question well, we have to understand what America is and what it's supposed to be. We are a very specific kind of thing, that is to say a very particular regime regime, which just means the form of our community, our political life together. And the regime that we are is a republic. And what the republic is, in turn, is this machine that was designed by political thinkers throughout the ages who recognize that all forms of government are subject to corruption, whether you have a monarchy or an aristocracy or even a democracy, people are broken, people are sinful, and ultimately things fall apart. And so the public is a combination of various different kinds of power, different kinds of regime blended together into this tripartite machine, which is supposed to survive and last longer than a monarchy, say, which decays into a tyranny or an aristocracy, which decays into an oligarchy. This is the machine that's designed to keep us from tearing each other apart. And there's one thing that can unmake a republic that can kind of gum up the works of that machine, and that is class warfare, class strife, civil discord among different groups of people. Once you start to see this, once you understand the purpose of our system, it starts to become clear why it is that all this talk of America is inherently racist, white people are inherently bad, men are inherently sexist. This kind of talk is cancerous in a regime like ours, in a republic. It groups us into tribes, it turns us against one another, and that's the crisis of the regime. So what I argue in the book is that when you understand this, you can turn back to the 
central purpose, the thing without which no regime can function, especially a republic. And that, as Aristotle tells us, is love, philia, civic friendship or neighborliness, you might even say, is the antidote to all the stuff that we are kind of struggling with these days. You know, if you reinvest, if you log off and stop thinking about the world in terms of these big abstractions and log off and reinvest in your neighborhood and in your neighbors, you will find that actually a lot of the problems that seem insurmountable can actually be reduced to a human-sized level. And you can face them in your school boards, in your churches, in your communities with your fellow man. And I think that's the way forward for us if we want to have a chance of surviving in this country. What is America's place in the course of Western civilization? I am a thoroughgoing Americanist in that I believe this country is the greatest thing to date that Western civilization has produced. I think our founding fathers deserve to be counted among the great thinkers of the Western tradition. I think they took what was best in the European civilizations, especially in uh, in UK, in the English civilization that they were descended from, and they added onto it this new Enlightenment tradition of liberty, and they built the republic that I've been referring to. Now, there's a couple things to note about this, a couple warnings or asterisks. And one is that the founders themselves, to a man, understood that the system they had built wasn't designed to run on its own. It needed the people to work, and the people had to be a moral and religious people, educated in self-governance. And that's the problem that we're up against, which is why I keep returning to this local issue, to coming back to our communities, to shoring up education and civic involvement in our communities. Because without that, none of the system can work. That's the first important thing to remember. And the other important thing to remember is that, you know, this civilization that we have built, this country that we are all a part of, then becomes the last best hope of Earth. Now, I don't believe that if America falls, the West will be over for good, but it does mean that America is important. You know, what happens to America matters very deeply for how the West will proceed for the next several hundred years. And just because we are inheritors of the Western tradition doesn't mean we can kind of check out of American politics. We should be living out our values, our principles, the values of this tradition in and through our politics to ennoble it and to make our country stronger. How has our technology hastened each of these crises? You know, digital technology is so pervasive. It's like this atmosphere that we move through. It's this air that we breathe. And as such, it has changed everything. It hasn't undone the eternal truths because nothing can do that, but it has reoriented us to one another and to ourselves. And there are good and bad parts of this. I'm not going to pretend that technology is inherently evil or that the digital revolution signals the end times. That's, that's not what I believe at all. What I think has happened is that our tools have surrounded us and raised up again the old deep questions. What's the purpose of a human being? What makes us what we are? And if our machines can be smarter and faster than us, then why should we continue wanting to be human at all? So all the questions that we've been talking about today, these sort of fundamental first principle level questions, they have not been as urgent 
as they are now in a long time. And we think that what this means is, well, you know, it's a brave new world and everything's going to be new. But actually, the ancient truths, the old texts become more urgent and not less under digital conditions. Because when these questions get raised again, then we need better answers than whatever gets handed down from the WEF or the CDC. We need stronger stuff, better medicine than that. And that's what we get from the Western tradition. And that's why I wrote the book. Finally, if you could describe the way forward for Western civilization. The short version is log off and go to church. And these two things will solve a lot of our problems. For one thing, you know, the log off part of it is not just, you know, stop using digital technology altogether, but rather reinvest yourself in the here and now first. Start from embodied humanity and then build outward from there. And go to church, I say kind of tongue in cheek, only in the sense that, you know, I just said I'm not trying to evangelize you into a particular sect or to tell you that my church is the best church. But what I am here to say is that none of our creeds, none of our founding documents, none of our human actions, just on the daily, every morning when we wake up, none of it makes any sense unless the word creator has a meaning, unless it points to an actual being with actual care for us. And we're in luck because such a being exists. And so these two things, recovering our sense of embodied human reality and confessing that there is such a thing as a higher power and that we have no choice but to worship it if we want our lives to make sense. These are the, the ways forward, I think, for Western civilization. Dr. Spencer Clavin is editor at the Claremont Institute. He has a doctorate in Greek literature from Oxford University, and he's author of the new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Dr. Clavin, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Speaking of truth, beauty, and goodness, Ad Crusum produces unique, high-quality products and services. Check out their Christian greeting cards, jewelry, posters, fine art, ornaments, church banners, and more at adcrusum.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll get a biography on St. Valentine with Dr. Bill Weinrich. We'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about the transfiguration of our Lord and we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus' resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. 
For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's Best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org.